Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, uh, everyone. Uh, my name is Adam Lotz. I'm a, a, a historian at Binghamton University, upstate New York, in the SUNY system. Uh, my work, uh, I've, I've looked a lot at the, the history of religion in schools. Uh, these days, I'm uh, just finishing a book about the very earliest public schools in U.S. cities, uh, uh, started by one of the folks that uh, uh, Dr. Kamlan looks at in, in his book, which we'll be talking about today, Joseph Lancaster. Um, so I, uh, I'm very excited to hear more about uh, the Common School Awakening, um, and, and then I'll pass it to you. Why don't you tell the people, uh, David, about yourself? Yeah, thank you. I'm David Comline, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, I am the author of The Common School Awakening, Religion, and the Transatlantic Roots of American Public Education, which came out with OUP in 2020. Um, and it's a revision of a dissertation that I wrote at Notre Dame uh, and defended in 2015. Uh, I'm currently an associate professor at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, uh, where I teach surveys and electives on American religion, especially. Yeah, and um, Professor Kamlan is is taking his family to do something that the people that he studied 200 years ago also did, which is, as he mentioned, this is a transatlantic story, and it's it's a multiple sites story in, in Europe as well. So um, can we start with that? Uh, the, the, the folks that you... Um, study they weren't just interested in Europe they were fascinated they were they were obsessed I don't know if that's too strong a word but uh, can you tell us something about the transatlantic angle of this generation of school reformers yeah awesome let's let's do this in several ways yeah so uh in in a little less than two weeks I'm going to Germany uh for a year-long sabbatical uh with a grant from the Humboldt Foundation um which I'm very excited for this will be the, the third time that I've spent an academic year in Germany, uh, I spent an academic year there in 20, uh, I think 13 to 14 on a Fulbright when I was writing this book, this dissertation. And I also spent an academic year, uh, 2008, 2009, uh, on a grant from the DAAD, uh, the Deutsche Akademische Austauschdienst. Um, and those those years there were really important for my own scholarly journey and, and for, for coming to this book. Uh, so we'll we'll go there and then we'll move to the, to the, the the subjects of the book themselves. Um, but I spent a first year in uh, in Tubingen, two thousand eight two thousand nine, um, really just because I. Uh, was looking for a way to go to Germany. My, my wife, um, who also teaches with me at the seminary here um, and is an expert in early Christian studies, uh, wanted to go to Germany. So I, I tried to find a way to go to, along with her. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I got funding to do a project there. And I spent a lot of time during that year learning German. And so um, I, I went from there to Notre Dame to start my PhD. And I really wanted to use the, you know, this 
tool, the skill that I had just invested a, a lot of effort in, in my doctoral studies. Um, so I was at Notre Dame looking around. I, I knew I wanted to write something on American religion. Um, and I was just exploring ways to uh, find, you know, people who, a way that, that German would be helpful there, really. And so I was reading a lot of different stuff. Um, and I read uh, the prominent book, um, uh, so Atlantic Crossings by uh, Daniel, you know, blank name at Princeton. Um, it's Rogers. a prominent book. <laughs> yeah, Rogers. Rogers, thank you, Daniel Rogers, right. Um, and that, uh, that was a great book. And, I, and um, I was just looking around at things in there um, and uh, came across um, this series of people who um, traveled to, to Germany and, and to Europe. And so Rogers has this argument that um, is actually this kind of what, what I call a, a Zonderzeit. Uh, it's a special time in American history where Americans are looking abroad for for uh, inspiration in social reform. Uh, and I, I, the Rogers book is amazing. I, I, I don't think there's actually a Zonderzeit. I think Americans are always looking abroad. Um, and so I, I saw this call for papers on, uh, on Rogers's book for a, um, an, a conference. And I was like, huh, I, I've got this idea. I've been looking at these people who are, who are trying to go abroad. And, and so I wrote this paper um, that came out in, in a, a book called Transatlantic Social social politics on uh, educational reformers from the 19, 1820s and 30s who traveled to Germany. Um, and that paper became the, the basis of this dissertation. Uh, that paper didn't really look at religion because I was sort of in the, in the Rogers mindset at the time. And um, it was just something that I came across. And so I did it. And the paper was well received. And um, pe uh, people at Notre Dame started pushing me to think, hey, I could you know, keep going with this. Uh, I was thinking about a really different topic still in, in educational history, um, but looking more at universities. Um, but people said, think about this earlier one, uh, earlier schooling. So, so I, I started running with it. Um, and, uh, you know, all these people that I was talking about who had traveled to Germany, uh, looking at schooling, were also, for the most part, actually clergy people, or they were uh, somehow highly religious. Uh, and so, so I started thinking about how to add that, that to the narrative. Um, and then I went, I uh, started writing the book, uh, went back to Germany again, um, on a full write in 2000, I think 13, 14, um, spent that in Heidelberg, which is where I'll be stationed this year again and completed the dissertation. So that's my sort of background, personal narrative, uh, Germany things, um, and I kind of wrote this book really because I was just looking for a way to use German history in my, in my research. Uh, and I really enjoyed the process of, of writing the book and, and um, what I found. And so now I'll turn and look at the, the book itself and the, the people who are in there going to Germany and uh, going abroad. Um, and I think there's, uh, there's so, one of the major themes of the book is that people travel to Europe and look at schooling in Europe and different uh, models of schooling. And they look at all sorts of models and they don't always do it for the same reasons or, uh, or, or the same intentions in mind when they travel abroad. So sometimes people travel abroad because they're sick and they just want to convalesce and get better uh, and they happen to be over there and they look at schools. 
sometimes people travel abroad very intentionally trying to learn a one single thing. So Thomas Gallaudet travels to first England and then to France trying to learn how to teach deaf people um, in whatever is best for them. Um, and sometimes people travel abroad um, for their own education because they uh, are studying for whatever they want to study in, in university or beyond. Um, but the they're all uh, then highly influenced and impacted by this time abroad. And when they return, they uh, take what they've learned in in Europe and they put it into practice in America. And this happens really across the board in uh, numerous educational settings in America. So chapter two looks at different kinds of uh, schooling in America. Um, it looks at schooling for the elite, uh, schooling for women, uh, schooling for the uh, people who are deaf and people who are blind. Um, and in all of these areas, uh, the sort of the foundational figures were inspired by trips abroad uh, and learning about uh, pedagogy abroad. And then uh, the sort of major impetus for the educational models um, that are most commonly associated with the Common School Awakening for public schooling, uh, for teacher education, for um, uh, state involvement and bureaucracy also come from Europe, from people who travel to Europe and are somehow inspired um, to come back to the states and uh, implement similar reforms uh, in Europe that they see in America. Well, and some of them, like uh, some of them are very well known, uh, like Horace Mann famously is, is um, fascinated by the Prussian system, but he, and he's not a bit player in the book, but he's not the central figure by any means. So some of the other names um, are maybe less well known, uh, maybe they don't have as many elementary schools named after him, like, like John Griscom, for example, Grisham, I'm not sure yeah. um, how they pronounced it, but he not only studied but he was publishing uh, about this whole, um, it, uh, the, the system, what it could mean for America, but also as a sort of travel story. Yeah. Um, so uh, as you, uh, Horace Mann's there, he's not the main, uh, not character, he's not the main figure in this story. So um, why do you think when you got into the, the real story, what you were most interested in about this transatlantic story, why did man's most famous Prussian uh, experience dwindle relative to these other figures? Yeah, great, thanks. So yeah, so Horace Mann obviously is, is sort of the major figure in uh, most narratives about common schooling in America. Uh, and if you look at the major textbooks in schooling in America, um, they'll have a, a section that begins with Horace Mann in the common schools. Um, but I think when you just start with Horace Mann, you're, you're missing a major part of the question. Uh, so Horace Mann gets a job that is given to him by the state of Massachusetts. Um, he wasn't looking for this job and the job preexisted him. Uh, he was the first person to fill it, but uh, the job was created by the government, by, by the state legislature. And so the question for me then became, well, uh, how did he get this job or, or why did it come to be that there was a job that he could fill at all and that's sort of the story that my book tells uh is um if horace Mann is the symbol of the common school awakening insofar as he represents uh state involvement in local schools and uh teacher training programs and things like that okay i can see that as a symbol but still uh how did that symbol come to be 
and that's the story that hasn't really been told at all. And that's the story that, that I'm telling here. Um, so Horace Mann does go to Germany, goes to Prussia in the 1840s, really after the, the, the major push for uh, schooling, um, school reform is over, I think, in, in many ways, after most states have decided what they're going to do uh, in reaction to this uh, to, to this movement for, for common schools. Um, so man's trip to Prussia does appear in my book uh, in the, the epilogue at the end when we're sort of wrapping things down. But there are lots of other figures who traveled uh, to Germany beforehand. Um, so yeah, John Griscom travels uh, early on in the movement in the 1820s. Um, and he he's the one, one who goes over to convalesce just to get better. Um, but then while he's there, he gets inspired and he starts traveling and he visits all sorts of schools uh, and comes back and uh, publishes a travelogue, really a narrative of his, his time abroad um, that people pick up and, and read. And that's one of the major inspirations for sending other people abroad, send uh, uh, people um, like Gallaudet and um, uh, later on Calvin Stowe in Ohio um, and others as well. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Ohio. Uh, you, the U.S. is unusual, um, and this is well known because it has so many, you know, not one school system for the country, but it has, you know, state by state, but then district by district. Um, and so then you look at, at not just Ohio, but other states as well. Um, could you, do you think that, that, there, that, there, that it even makes, it's a movement in terms of these state leaders and local leaders having similar sorts of ideas, but do you think it's, it's, um, uh, more helpful to think of this as a national story, a U.S. story, uh, an international story, a transatlantic story, or maybe, I don't know, a bunch of transatlantic stories? You know, how did Ohio learn from Europe? How did Massachusetts learn from Europe? Uh, do you think there's a one way that you think about this and that you approach it in the book? Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, I think um, it, I think you can tell the story on, on all those levels, uh, and the, the book does so. The, uh, the book does tell the story on state levels, um, and it focuses in that instance on Ohio and Massachusetts. Uh, but I, it, it tries to uh, say that this is not simply a state level story, this is a national story. Um, and so I, I reference other areas frequently, um, especially, so there's four chapters, two, two on Ohio and two on Massachusetts, but then there are other chapters that um, treat, uh, treat other developments um and those uh just look whatever whatever's relevant uh from the country gets in uh whatever state it may be um which are largely in the north but not exclusively in the north um and in the the epilogue to the book um i once again say this is a national story um and there's similar developments that are occurring in the south and in the west um, in my early plans for this book, I, it was going to be even larger, um, and I, I actually sort of did all the research for a chapter on Virginia. I just didn't get around to writing it, and so then I dramatically condensed that research and put it in the epilogue. Um, but there could be a very, very similar story in Virginia, um, not with the same ending, but with a very similar plot that would, be, would follow all the developments that you're seeing elsewhere. So I think this is a story that uh, you know, I think stories are very well told on a local level when we have particular people doing particular things, um, and you see that on a state level. 
but we see similar stories being told, uh, similar stories that could be told in numerous states. And when you put them all together, I think you do get a national story. Um, but uh, part of that, that, those stories on each state level is that people are going abroad. <laughs> and so that makes this into a, a, a transatlantic story in, in lots of ways. Um, and in, uh, in the book, it's mostly uh, Americans who travel to Europe to study things. Uh, but it starts in chapter one with Joseph Lancaster uh, and the figure that you're looking at, who's uh, um, someone from Britain who comes to America. And um, there's still Americans who are interested. There are Americans who are writing to Lancaster before he comes to America. There are Americans who are reading about Lancaster and implementing his reforms before he comes to America. Um, but he does come to America. So there is there is a back and forth, although the the thrust of the narrative um, is is Americans who travel to to, to Europe. Um, also later on, uh, there's a um, Julius Heinrich uh, Nicholas Heinrich Julius is another German um, Prussian who travels to America. So so there's there's back and forth. But the book, while um, transatlantic in scope, is focused on America. That's my own area of expertise. Right. And and but and not only transatlantic, national, state and local, but also eternal. Uh, now, your, your title is 100 years old uh, from from a reformer who was fairly secular himself. Elwood Coverley at Stanford wasn't really interested in spreading the religious gospel, but he was interested in spreading the public school gospel. Yeah. So it's a, it's you make a great double movement of this common school awakening in the 1800s. It is about Jesus, at least in some part. In the 1900s, Elwood Coverley uses the phrase more about the common school part. Uh, what do you see the relationship? Uh, you know, why did you pick the title for one? And then do you think of this as a religious revival? Or do you think of this as something new, something about state power and religious power? Yeah, yeah. So um, so the, the, the title for the book, The Common School Awakening, uh, is something that I draw from Elwood Coverley. Uh, and he uses this phrase in his most famous book um, from 1919 called, I should know the title, uh, Public Education in the United States. Um, and Coverley is sort of the, in many ways, the founder of American educational history. Um and he just has a passing reference to the common school awakening. Uh, and he loves common schools and, and thinks that they're all about spreading American democracy uh, across the country. Um, so I, I was reading his, his books you know, early in this process and came, and came across the phrase. Um, and, and, and I loved it because uh, it, the, the awakening term uh, obviously is a term that comes from religious history. Uh, in, in American religious history, there's discussion of the first great awakening, and uh, some people talk about a second great awakening. Um, and the second great awakening, while much more diffuse and ambiguous, uh, we're not really sure what, what it is nearly as well uh, as the first great awakening. And both both awakenings have been under attack. We're not sure they're awakening at all. But they're still helpful terms to think about large movements. <laughs> Um, and the second great awakening really corresponds in time pretty much pretty much exactly with uh, this, what I'm seeing in common schools. Um, so the second great awakening is uh, sort of starts with a uh, revival in Cane Ridge, perhaps, um, and then spreads beyond. And we get uh, the creation of uh, numerous uh, societies that try to uh, spread the gospel throughout the country through printing Bibles or uh, spreading missionaries. Um, and we get the, the growth of what people call the benevolent empire, 
Um, and all of these uh, developments are associated broadly with this, this second great awakening uh, in a time period that corresponds pretty much exactly with the common school awakening that I'm talking about. Uh, so, so that there is the, the, there are these these trends that are occurring in the country uh, religiously uh, that are also occurring in schooling at the same time period. Um, and I think uh, it's it's very helpful and appropriate to look at the schooling development as an outgrowth of this second great awakening. Uh, the same things that were associated with the second great awakening, um, these societies are also uh, the societies for publishing the Bibles, but they're also societies for forming schools. Uh, and they're being formed by the same people. Uh, it's the same religious figures, the same religious actors who are forming Bible societies, uh, who also uh, for, form school societies and attend these meetings in schools. Uh, and they're really, I think their initial goal in the 1820s and 1830s, early on in the 1830s, is to spread the gospel. They want people to learn to read and to encounter Christ through the Bible. And so uh, that's why they initially think that public schools would be great. Um, and then the narrative about the first, or the second great awakening in religious history, um, that narrative often has that awakening breaking down towards the end of the 1830s, um, when uh, religious actors sort of start to fall apart. Um, and we get uh, tensions, uh, north-south tensions um, over, over uh, slavery are starting to heighten and uh, tensions over uh, the place of revivalism versus other ways of doing uh, religious services start to um, appear much more um, prominently and denominations start to break apart. So the Presbyterians split in 1837 uh, between the new school and the old school. Um, and Baptists are going to split and other groups are going to split. And so the, the Second Great Awakening in religious historiography sort of ends right, right around that time period, which is exactly, I think, when the Common School Awakening is also fracturing. Uh, and the, the argument of the book says that the Common School Awakening uh, was incredibly powerful for about 30 years and, and was powerful enough to bring into, uh, to, to create the foundations of what we might call our modern school system with uh, state bureaucracies and teacher training colleges. And right after doing so, the, the forces that had brought these reformers together sort of collapsed. And uh, we still had these state-sponsored uh, teach, uh, teacher training colleges. We still had these um, state positions like the one that Horace Mann stepped into, but we no longer had the same uh, religious fervor supporting them or behind them. Uh, and so eventually uh, a new logic for these these institutions came, uh, stepped in. And instead of these institutions being about helping spread the gospel through teaching people to read the Bible, uh, they became about helping people to assimilate into American culture by helping them function in uh, the workplace or in factories or things like that. Right, right, right. And, and, and so every, in every generation, this, uh, um, I don't know if that's the right term, but this faith in the power of school, it includes for most generations, at least in the 1800s, like what, what 21st century historians would call uh, maybe pan-Protestant religious faith as well in an unquestioned way. You know, this, this gospel of literacy is incredibly powerful for reformers. The assumption is that um, children 
left on their own can go and can grow in in malignant directions, dangerous directions. They can become thieves and hoodlums and prostitutes. But but safely um, nurtured, uh, they can become everything you know for their own good and for the society's good. So this the idea of of actual literacy, you know, like limited literacy, reading, writing, numeracy was sort of salvific, you know, like if we can get schools to all the kids, we can save them from lives of crime. But in, in ways I think that are different than um, 21st century norms, even late 20th century norms, there were fewer distinctions between that kind of salvation and like religious salvation, you know, like we're gonna teach them both to read and, you know, religiosity. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit of the folks that you read a lot of them weren't explicit, like John Griscom was not thinking of himself as a religious missionary. And yet his assumption about assumptions about school included a lot more, you know, religion and than than 21st century folks. Could, could you talk a, a bit about the folks that you studied, um, uh, Gallaudet and others um, included religion and what they just assumed would be like the proper education of a young person would include some sort of religion? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's, there's, there's two parts of it here. So with Griscom and Gallaudet, I think, so um, Gallaudet, for instance, is a Quaker. I'm sorry, Griscom, for instance, is a Quaker. Um, and I think his Quaker spirituality really just infused uh, what he did. Um, and so he, he did not think of himself as a religious missionary or even a religious figure. He wasn't ordained. He was a teacher. That, that, uh, that was his primary function and calling. But in society at the time, um, his religion was just incredibly important. Uh, it, you couldn't, it was not it was not a separate part of who he was. It was just something that he did. Um, for Gallaudet, I think uh, Gallaudet actually was more, more of a religious figure uh, distinctly and thought of himself in that way. Um, and he had been to seminary uh, and would eventually be ordained. Um, and really, when he goes abroad to uh, study deaf education, he, d he does that, I think, with one person in mind, uh, one person that he wants to hear the gospel. And he, he is very interested in making sure that deaf people can hear the gospel in w whatever way they would do that. Um, and there are people, so he's probably actually the most religious figure uh, in some ways. So the person who, who approaches education in the most with the most distinctly religious um, mindset and and uh, vocabulary in, uh, throughout the book, um, which is interesting because he also is actually probably the person who appears in the most chapters of the book. Um, he, he's not often thought of as a, a major educational reformer, obviously a major figure in deaf education, uh, but he really has his hands in sort of everything that's going on. Um, people are talking to him a lot and he's talking to them a lot. Um, and so he, he uh, is interacting with the people in Massachusetts, although he's not from Massachusetts, he's interacting with people in Ohio, he's not from Ohio. He's writing people uh, up and down across the United States. Um, and he, he, he does, I think, have the most uh, religious approach to this, even more so than other people who are clergymen. So uh, the, the most, uh, um, the, the, the key figure in my, uh, in my second chapter, Massachusetts is a, a person named Charles Brooks, who is a Unitarian pastor. Um, and as a Unitarian pastor, obviously religion is front and center in, in what he does every day. And it's very much front and center in his school reform as well. 
um, and it's, it's it is why he's pushing for uh, a state-sponsored teacher training college and um, uh, the sort of secretary position that Horseman is going to step into. Um, but uh, while religion is a major part of his rhetoric and what he's doing, and, and I think part of his motivation, he's still wedding schools to religion in, in, a, in a way that's somewhat different than Gallaudet. I, I think for Gallaudet, it's really all about sharing the gospel, particularly with this person at first, and then, and then expands to that. Um, and I think uh, Brooks has a slightly broader conception. But yeah, I think um, at the time, just religion was just an incredibly powerful force, and, and, and it was part of the air that people breathed uh, and how they approached things. Uh, yeah, indeed. And, and you, you didn't mention, uh, and I, 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 I will be super brief with Joseph Lancaster, but Joseph Lancaster, um, not, not uh, as public a name as Horace Mann either, but he is always described as the Quaker from London. And he used Quaker networks. This, this is why, you know, it was Quaker networks in Philadelphia, especially, who really pushed this Lancastrian vision of schooling. And this is the 18 teens, 1820s, specifically for the poor, black and white, boy and girl. The idea was that, you know, Quaker, but other Protestants as well, that everybody needed the gospel, uh, white and black, um, uh, free and uh, unfree, a boy and girl. Uh, Lancaster, when I started I, my research, I assumed he was going to be an earnest, maybe uh, naive reformer, but he had a very um, uh, instrumental view of Quakerism. <laughs> he joined, he seemed earnest, don't get me wrong, but yeah. he, just as a person, um, he seemed to mostly think of what Quakerism could do for him, uh, <laughs> which is a hard thing to be, to say if you're sincere, but He's, we don't have to talk too much about Joseph Lancaster. Well, Lancaster was a fascinating figure. And, and yeah, the first chapter of the book is about him. Um, and I think he's, he's often thinking about what things can do for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, which is a problem for him. And people notice that and, and it becomes uh, really his downfall in lots of ways. Um, but so, yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. That, um, he, his Quakerism is something that he tries to use to his advantage as he does with everything else. So I, I don't think he's necessarily uh, particularly hypocritical in doing that. <laughs> he may be hypocritical, but only because as a person, that's that's one of his, his significant weaknesses. Yeah. yeah you, you mentioned a couple of what you thought before versus what you thought along the way. But if, if you were to have a time machine to, you know, 20, 20, 2009, um, and to predict this book compared to what it came out as, what do you think are the biggest surprises, the biggest changes that happened along your journey toward this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah, so I mentioned sort of the, the, the scaling down of, of the book um, and how I, I, I deal with fewer, um, fewer parts of it. I, I mean, the, the dissertation proposal even had a chapter on Canada. Um, and I, I forget the figure there, actually, but there was a, a significant uh, Rylestan, maybe Rylestan, I should know this. Um, there's, there's someone doing similar things there, too. Um, so it, it certainly gets, gets shorter. Um, I, I don't think that uh, when I, when I start, when I started the book, I was not really, um, so sort of the chronology that I've mapped out with religious reform, um, powering the common school awakening up until a certain point at which it breaks down and then other factors come in. 
Uh, I think that chronology is really nice and it's, it's good and true. And that's why it's in the book. <laughs> I didn't come in with that chronology in my mind at all. Um, it, it, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise that that's there because it maps on, I think with, with the evidence and also with broader historiography, but it wasn't something that occurred to me. Um, I think I was just looking at these, uh, I was just surprised that these early reformers uh, were also religious and were looking abroad. And I was looking for things having to do with that. Um, so that was, that's a, that's yeah, been um, something that I've learned in the process maybe. Um, yeah, and then I, I think um, there are some, so I mentioned how Gallaudet features prominently in the book um i think that's a surprise uh and sort of the significance of deaf education for for thinking about schooling and how it's approached as a whole in this era would not be, have been something that that occurred to me before writing this book um but deaf education actually does provide a really helpful lens for understanding uh how people are thinking about education uh christianity citizenship and all of these questions. Um, it's, it's not just a, a sort of a, a fringe field. It's something that can actually inform major, major questions in, uh, in American historiography. Mm, speaking um, of major questions, uh, still right now, uh, outside the Massachusetts State House in Boston, they have the statue, Horace Mann, and they have the plaque, father of, I don't even know what it says, but they use the yeah. word father. <laughs> I don't know if it says public schools or common schools. Do you know? I think it's public. I've got an inside okay. uh, cover here. Uh, right. Father of the American public school system is what it says. All right. So uh, for, you know, uh, people who are generally knowledgeable about the history of schools, man does play this outsized role. Your book, uh, again, doesn't ignore him. But if you had your druthers, what would you do? Would you take the statue down? Would you put another statue up next to it? Would you change the nameplate? Like what's for people who aren't going to spend uh, too much time learning about the common school revival, besides reading your great book, um, what's the takeaway about the sort of um, roots? Number one, well, let me try one. Number one, it is transatlantic. Okay. What else? Yeah, I think, I think, so I want the takeaway to be it's transatlantic and it's religious. Uh, those are the, those are the two major arguments that you, know, you see in the subtitle of the book, <laughs> which I think I think holds up. Um, and I, I do think, uh, at least for the broader historiography, I, I also want to change the timeline. Um, so uh, I'm not sure that I'm personally too concerned about the statue. Uh, I'm, I'm not an, icon uh, an iconoclast in, in that terms. We can we can leave it up there, whatever. Um, but for scholars, I, I, I do think scholars should reframe. Uh, man's significance, or or at least look to to other figures and to other impulses. Um, so I, I do hope that scholars take that away from from the book. Um, yeah, decentering man. Um, if man wants to, if people want to keep man in the the, the center of the public mind, I'm not. <laughs> it doesn't bother me as much. Um, but then again, uh, th yeah. Then again, I'm more of a religious historian than, a, than an educational historian. So maybe if educational history was really what, what my primary interest was, maybe it would be a little, little more important to me to, to change the public mind too. <laughs> what, what do you think? You, you're, I guess you're a little more. 
Well, the, the phrase that I'm using in my Lancaster book uh, is that man and his generation, and the phrase is surprisingly resilient. Lawrence Kremen uses it without quotation marks, fathers of American public education, uh, yeah. the, the Horace Manns, the Henry Barnards, the Calvin Stowe's. Yeah. Kremen, and this is writing in the 1960s, just says they, the, this generation are the fathers. And then Carl Castle in the 80s, 70s, 80s, he calls them the fathers. <laughs> he uses quotation marks around the term, but uh, he still uses the term. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I am with you there. This generation, I think we need to get rid of this fathers, first yeah. of all, like, yeah. uh, but, but maybe creators. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt. And, and, and Carl Castle wouldn't say that they're, they're this either. And this is why I use the quotation marks. They're not creators of the common schools by any means. Uh, they are, in my opinion, they are fixers, they are tweakers, yeah. they are expanders, but it, it, it's um, certainly in urban areas, certainly in the Northeast, Philadelphia, New York, uh, Boston, New Haven, but even in uh, you know, places like Virginia, as you mentioned, the, the, the puzzles of the common school in terms of tax funding, in terms of tuition payments, those are figured out um, in the first couple few decades, right, uh, people right. like Horace Mann, Henry Barnard, yeah. they systematize, yeah. they expand, but they don't create. Um, yeah. So my joke in my own head is father of the public school, Horace Mann, only if you mean it in the very funny sense, uh, which I don't think anyone is how they mean it, is that like the father in the sense of the like dad joke father, like um, claims credit for stuff that was already there, uh, uses a lot of duct tape to fix things that were basically created before. <laughs> yep. So if that's what you mean by father, then yeah. Uh, but that's clearly, obviously not what people mean. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you. I think that the, the generation um, weren't creators. They were yep. fixers, uh, duct tapers, uh, expanders, and successfully and importantly so. Yeah. Um, all right. So what about what what's still out there? You mentioned Virginia had to get moved uh, to a smaller role. Canada had to get cut. So what if if um, if, you know, uh, you had the ability to do the, the you know, um, common school awakening too? what do you think you would want to um, expand on? What's the first place you would look for for mysteries that still puzzle you? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, I mentioned Virginia, one could do Canada. Um, I, th I think more attention, even in the book, this is, uh, the book's been positively reviewed, which I've been grateful for. Um, one, one of the, um, not criticisms, but one of the comments that I received is that I could have had, uh, I, I, people say, I, I do pay attention to um, non, uh, people who are not Caucasian and white, um, I could pay more attention. I think that's true. I, I did uh, work on including African Americans in the story, um, but unfortunately, they're they're sort of there because the the major reformers are excluding them. Um, I still think there's probably more that could be done uh, with that, um, and it, it it is in there, but it could be expanded. Um, it's in there, uh, especially in the Ohio chapter. There could be more in Massachusetts. There have been a few good books that have come out even since the dissertation. So I. Um, I'll be able to incorporate the, incorporate those them into revisions as I was writing the book, but they're not as foundational as they could be, perhaps. Um, so I think that's that's one of the areas uh, where there's more work to be done. Um, yeah, and I think just um, there are other sort of case studies. I, I think this is this is a book of case studies, um, but 
you know, you're writing a book on Lancaster and th there can be a whole book on Lancaster um, and there can be a book on, on other, other figures. Um, I, I also had a chapter on, um, on Pennsylvania mapped out early on um, with uh, Gerard college, I think it's called, um, which th there, there could be certainly uh, an essay on that, which I've thought about writing at some point in time, probably won't get around to and make it maybe, maybe more, maybe, maybe be a book. Um, so there's, there's lots of places here that, that can be expanded, I think. Yeah, and if I could just also, for example, we talk about the common school awakening, this common school movement as a K-12 story, but we know that it's also a, a teacher training story, like yeah, essentially, right. it is very cool. Yes. So the, the, I think this, this um, false distinction between what is now K-12 and, quote, you know, higher ed tertiary ed yeah. it just doesn't make any sense yeah. uh, and that you can't talk about and, and this is certainly the case with lancaster uh, lancaster was a monster and he was a greedy monster and one of his um as soon as he realized that there was money to be made in teacher training he saw that quickly and he um quickly asserted exclusive rights to certify uh, in order, you know, to give certificates, literal certificates to people that he thought only available through him were, were qualified to become Lancastrian school teachers. So, you know, I think this, um, uh, I think a lot of historians since, since Carl Castle have done a great job of, of always emphasizing that like public, private, those distinctions that we have don't make any sense in the 1800s. Yeah. Even secular religious, no, not art, our distinctions, people argued about those things, but in different terms. Um, and I think we should do a similar thing with K-12 and higher ed. We assume that they're different stories with different histories, but it's really, you know, the, the, the common school awakeners were as interested in the souls of the teachers yeah. as in the students. And in their minds, the two were inextricably linked. You needed Christian teachers to have Christian students. Yeah. And you need the Christian students to grow into Christian teachers. So yeah. I think that the, that's one more thing that I would love to see more of is, um, you know, early 1800s uh, examination of um, the entire thing together. It's yeah. not just about children. Well, it is often college was for, you know, 14 year olds. Right. <laughs> so I, I would love to see more yeah. um, integrated stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah, my book is still fundamentally a book about uh, how we get pedagogies and how we get laws. Um, and so it's, it's still, while I'm arguing that we get pedagogies and laws from common people, normal people uh, who, who are advocating um, for them, uh, it's still in some sense, a, sort of a, a story of the elite. Um, but uh, that needs to be expanded. Absolutely. Um, and uh, not just how we get the pedagogies, but what are the pedagogies actually doing on the ground uh, for, for the people who are using them, people who are, who are um, learning them. Um, and that, have, that, that can be done at the, yeah, on, on all the levels. Uh, so I've, I've helped us understand how we get teacher training schools, but yeah, what happens in those schools? Um, there's a lot more work to be done there too. All right. I've got one more. And then, uh, uh, but before we go, uh, before we get to it, uh, what else uh, um, can you share about this journey? Um, so, for example, uh, if you were to talk about your book um, historiographically, what do you think is something that 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 you include that hasn't really shown up in enough depth before? 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, um, I think so that the, the historiography of American education is really just fascinating uh, with, so from this, you know, as you progress from sort of Coverly to the revisionists and then to what's happening today. Um, I, I think I stand pretty firmly in the, the, um, the mainstream educational historians occurring right now, um, which is pushing back against the revisionists a little bit. Um, while I still want to acknowledge those helpful things going on there. Um, but I think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm still bringing helpful correctives uh, to the, that revisionist that narrative that I think still is, um, if not the dominant one today, is still the, the one that needs to be reckoned with today. <laughs> um, and there's, you know, there's the, the quote in um, the Michael Katz book uh, where he explicitly says um, that politics, religion, and other countries have been over emphasized in previous history and so he's going to ignore them <laughs> and that's fine for history you know like uh we're all in a conversation and conversations go back and forth but those things were then ignored for for far too long <laughs> and those things actually did matter and we need to bring them back uh and and pay attention to them um and i think that's the major contribution is is to to look at laws and and to look at uh, how we got them and to recognize that religion played a major role um and Translate influences played a major role. Um, and from my field of educational history, or sorry, my field of religion, which is really my, my primary primary training where I do most of my work, um, religious scholars are using education more and more. Um, and, but I still think it's a little more work for educational scholars to, to, to do, to pay attention to religion. Uh, I, I think you're the best person out there doing that, um, which, which is why I wanted to talk to you uh, with the interview. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot more going on here. Uh, and I, I hope the book inspires people to continue to think along those lines. Yeah, well, thank you. But but also, this is, you mentioned uh, Daniel Rogers' Atlantic Crossings. I know for me, one of the books that got me started a million years ago, looking at um, especially conservative evangelical Protestants and, and school was George Marsden's uh, originally 1980 and then 2006, um, Fundamentalism in American Culture. And it was a... Uh, um, it was a big deal for me. I read the book in my graduate work in Wisconsin. It sort of started me on this journey. And then honestly, I, I, I didn't, I put it away for a while. And I came back to it in the new edition, the 2006 edition. Uh, and I was very different. And my experience with it was very different. It's, it's a great book. And it's, it's, in my opinion, you know, you can, people have, have um, talked as, as you mentioned, maybe it needs to include more non-white evangelicals. Okay, maybe. But it's just it's such a, a, a beautiful, powerful book. But my reading of it was different, you know, whatever, 15 years later. Would it be Atlantic Crossings for you or is there a different book that kind of started you out that you think if you read it now, you know, you'd be um, in a different place and able to think about it differently? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I th- I think as far as this particular project, Atlantic Crossings had the clearly had the biggest impact on on, on launching me in this direction. Um, are there? Yeah. Um, other books that are clearly really important. Uh, I, I think Coverly is really interesting. I, I, I think Coverly has been. Uh, I think we should, some someone should pay a little more attention to him again. Uh, you know, there, there was a. Uh, 
a book a long time ago, The Wonderful World of Elwood Carilli. Um, and, and his book's quite helpful, uh, if, if only because of the facts that are in it. Um, and I, I use the facts in his book a lot. Um, so I, I don't want to revive his his vision of, of how schools, yeah, his, his, his larger uh, agenda is, is not my agenda. Um, but I think the book's helpful for, for, for the facts. Um, and I used it for the facts. So it'd be interesting to revisit it again and, and think about it, having then written this. Um, yeah, and then the research historians uh, obviously um, are significant, but but I'm not sure that I think they're just saying saying they're they're telling a different story than I am. Um, I'm not sure I had to re change their story based on what I've done. Yeah, great. Okay, so uh, I got my eye on the clock. Uh, what else uh, before we close? Uh, 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 do you think people um, who don't know your work uh, should why you know they should rush out and get it right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I just I, I I hope people can enjoy the book. I think um, I, th I think it's telling an important story. I think it's well written. Uh, I, I really tried hard on, on the on the on the prose. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that. It, uh, I defended sales in 15, I was published in 2020, um, and I spent basically the five years polishing the prose <laughs> uh, while teaching and, and having kids. But still, um, I, I hope that people enjoy, uh, can enjoy reading it uh, and, and learning from it. And, 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 I'll, and I'll add in, I'd say for everybody who, um, not just in uh, people interested in sort of the history of the growth of public schools, uh, which this book is uh, absolutely vital for everyone, uh, in, in that field, but even for people who are more focused in uh, history of childhood, uh, this story is, is um, a really vital way, it tells a vital uh, story about the way um, school reformers, um, the, the unquestioned assumptions that they made about what it meant to be a young person. Uh, and in their head, that definition was changing and they were keeping up and they were making modern cutting edge re uh, reforms uh, because they were, uh, they thought of themselves as sort of having a new and better understanding of what 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 the child was, what a child was, what children needed uh, to flourish uh, in schools. Um, okay, well, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking about the book. Uh, it's, again, it's Common School Awakening, twenty twenty, Oxford University Press. Uh, it's a great book. Thanks so much for talking. I really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.